Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! Well, today we finish up uh, a six-week journey, uh, as I said earlier, in uh, the Christmas story and looking at uh, the opportunity we have to rediscover Christmas so that we can see that uh, there's freedom that Jesus offers today and that he brings today. And that is the beauty of the Christmas story. That's, that really is the power of the Christmas story. And I think there is a, a, a correct spiritual and intellectual posture to approach the Christmas story as well that is also helpful. Uh, and I found a, a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, uh, and he put it this way here. So let's look at this together. So the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect. It's, a, it's that, that I know I need a savior mentality. And when I read this, I thought that was really interesting. Like, that's another part of the power of the story is to realize I actually do need a savior uh, I'm not strong enough to be my own savior, I, uh, to put yourself in those shoes and in that, uh, again, that spiritual kind of emotional intellectual place. And Dietrich Longhoffer is a guy that lived some difficult years in his life and knowing that we need a savior. And then he says, and who look forward to something greater to come. So there's the, this now I need a savior, but also the cool thing about Advent is remember it's two parts. It's he did come the first time, but he's also coming back. And so uh, this next PJ, this next slide here is kind of how I was, I was, I guess, processing this powerful contrast. So next. He says, uh, or sorry, I said, we celebrate Advent because it's the promise that something greater is coming. Right? That's, that's the cool thing for me about Advent. Something greater is also coming. It doesn't just have to stay in the manger, so to speak. That this imperfection we find ourselves in isn't the end of the story. And so that part here, that is what we're going to look at today, is where is this all headed? Uh, you know, we have the Christmas story. We've looked at some of the details of the Christmas story. But if we look at it all together, we also want to look at the end in Revelation. So that's what we're going to end today is looking at where this is all going. Because that's, again, that's where the power and the ability to rediscover the wonder of the Christmas story, I think, comes from. Is seeing how God put this all together literally over thousands of years and something's going to echo into eternity past and then into eternity future, whatever that means, right? Like, so that's how big the story of Christmas really is. And I think every Sunday I've, I've shared a couple of verses and a couple of thoughts. I just want to um, make sure we're hitting on why are we doing this uh, comes from Luke 20, 24. That was my, my heart. So next slide. That was where my thinking was in this whole series because Jesus, he comes alongside a couple of disciples, all dejected, they think he's dead. They think he's gone. This is post-resurrection. And he, if you look at the second half there, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So here is a couple of his disciples that think their savior is dead. Their, you know, their Messiah has been crucified and he's gone. He catches up with them on the road to Emmaus. And he looks at his life in light of Moses, all the way back to Genesis, right? All the way back to the beginning, all the prophets across the Old Testament. And he took all the scriptures. And I wonder how long of a, a talk was this? Did he just throw a couple verses at them just to help contextualize what was happening? Or did he really say, well, let's start in Genesis, guys. And this is just a really long conversation. But he did that for them because he wanted them to see how his 
story fit into the whole story, which I love. And that's why I wanted to do this, so that hopefully, yes, we can rediscover the power of the story of Christmas and what Jesus brings today. So that's where we've been. Uh, that's kind of where we have hit so far and the things that we've wanted to do because we started, like I said, Genesis 3, the fall, and God, in verse, thir- or verse 15 of Genesis 3, God announced the answer to the problem of sin and death, that eventually there would be this one that would crush Satan. And then you bounce all the way through the Old Testament. We looked at a lot of Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to Jesus. And then we looked at the story of Christmas, and we tried to just uh, understand what was going on spiritually and all that stuff, what was happening in the heavens when Jesus was born and the kind of spiritual battle that was going on. And then now, this morning, we started off with John eighteen thirty seven. So we, we did that on purpose because, again, how did Jesus see his life? And when he says to Pilate, he's, you know, he's asked the question, so you're a king. And then, of course, Jesus replies, well, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this, Jesus says, and this is out of the CSB here. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what is the truth then? Well, for Jesus, what he said in John 14 is that he is the way, the truth, and what? The life, right? So why did he come? Why exactly did he come? Well, he finishes that and says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. That is why I have come. Oh, that's so narrow. Well, yeah, it is. And Jesus said it is. He said it's a narrow path. And so that's the, again, this is the context that we want to view the story in, in light of what Jesus has done and in light of what Jesus has said. So that's his life. Last night we looked at Romans 6, 7, and 8 and, and kind of what's available to us, the freedom in Romans 6 that's offered. But then Romans 7, the struggle to embrace that freedom because, man, we're just all too human, a slave to sin, as Paul would say. And then chapter 8, though, he says, however, even in spite of that, we can still have victory in Christ because we belong to Christ as his children if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate that, which is a huge promise that we always have. But where does all that go? And so to find that answer, we're going to be in Revelation 19 today, and we're going to start looking at the end of the story and what happens there. And so this is a very interesting passage here. And to give a little context, in Revelation 19, we are in the midst of a celebration because now the enemies of God, evil has been cast out, they've cast down, judgment has happened. So we're seeing celebration happen in these verses right here. But we're also seeing uh, a lot more than that. We're getting a glimpse of embattled Christians. And we're also seeing a transition from the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the slaughtered Lamb, no less, uh, of what he was when he came the first time. And we get to see his transition now to the second advent, Jesus. So he goes from, and this is important for us, a good theology for a Christian, a good doctrine for a Christian is to say, look, I, I need to understand where Jesus was in his first advent was pointing to his second advent. There was, a, there was a crossover because of his resurrection and then what he would do when he comes back the second time that he promised us. And so it's important to land in Revelation 19 to get this picture, this image of Jesus seared into your head when you think about little baby Jesus, right? Because he is a freedom fighter that came on a daring against all odds rescue mission for the souls of mankind. Like that's what Christmas was about. And so we don't necessarily get that vibe unless we, you know, pull in Revelation 12 and pair that with Luke chapter 2. But we definitely are going to get it here in Revelation 19. We're going to see Jesus really in this form here coming back. So let's check it out. So in verse 11, John in his revelation sees the heavens opened 
and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And Jesus said earlier in chapter 3 that he is faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. And your first glance at that, you're like, well, that's not very Christmassy. That's not very baby Jesus, right? And it doesn't feel that way, but that's the whole point, right? That's why we're doing it this way, so that we can understand that, yeah, that is baby Jesus, but this is where baby Jesus goes. This is where the story ends up. Jesus coming back as the one on a white horse, the rider that's called Faithful and True, because he is, uh, like we saw in the Old Testament, the one that's going to have absolute authority to be able to judge and end evil. That's what this is talking about, to end evil, and so it goes on in this revelation, in this view uh, here. He's, again, trying to make this connection for us, cradle of the cross. His eyes, verse 12, were like fiery flame. So think piercing judgment there. And many crowns were on his head. And, of course, that is very symbolic in all the Bible for absolute authority or authority. And so he's got many crowns, so he has authority and lots of it. And so this is the Jesus that we need to take. We need to understand that this really intimidating one here is the one that came for us. Like, this is the one that, in an all-powerful way, created the universe. Right? I mean, this is, who we, this is who we worship. And this is why then it makes sense when you have the wise men showing up a couple years, maybe after Jesus is born, they come to worship the king because through some kind of revelation, they had understood who this little baby was going to be. And the announcement of the, uh, in Luke 2, I mean, this is who Jesus is. And so now we finally get to see that. And this is an interesting part here. This next verse. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. So this verse is kind of a mysterious verse. There's a lot of mysterious things in Revelation, obviously. But this one is like, okay, so what is exactly, what does that mean? That he had a name that no one except himself knows. And so I think this kind of hits on the transcendent nature of Jesus. That uh, this next quote from Paige uh, Patterson here. Though he may be known... He remains the unknowable one. I, and it, there's that revelation, like the New Testament says, like Colossians says, like John says, that he is the full embodiment of God. And so we know God. Jesus himself says, if you know me, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know me. It's like, I am God. But at the same time, there's a component of Jesus that he's not like just completely knowable, right? You can't just package Jesus up and be like, okay, this is Jesus because he's God. If you can create the universe, I would hate to think that I could understand him fully check, right? No, like I can't even understand my wife fully. You think I can understand God fully, right? So he's unknowable at the end of the day. But here's, here's something I, I hope is helpful. I, I was researching a couple weeks ago now on this series, and something really interesting came up through this. So I hope I can do this right for you, because this is really cool for me, and I hope it is for you as well, just about the nature of God. Okay, so to give a little context here out of the Old Testament, in Judges chapter 13, we have this scene uh, where you have the angel of the Lord that's going to come, and he's going to speak to Samson. Remember Samson, right? The judge Samson, like the really strong guy, right? So he's going to be talking to his dad. And in this conversation, uh, there, he's going to ask him, the angel of the Lord, a question. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, that's, uh, we know that that is God. Why it's presented that way, I'm not really sure. But the angel of the Lord has the ability to speak as God. That's one of the big reasons we know that this is God. So a lot of people think this is uh, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. Like this is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament when he shows up. Because clearly this character, this person is God. Uh, and so that's who's talking to Samson's father. So here in Judges chapter 13, this guy Manoah, 
says to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? And then the response back from the angel of the Lord, why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding, like you can't even understand what my name is. So this is really the nature of God, that even my name, that Hebrew word there, pali, is beyond understanding. So the connection then that, of course, that is made when it's talked, when, when Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, super Christmassy verses, whenever they are talking about this coming Messiah and who the Messiah would be, you know, he would be God and he would be all these other things, but there's an interesting word. So this word poly for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, right? The very, very famous Christmas verse here. And, but the next one, though, you see this word poly come up again. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So really, this name Wonderful Counselor is like this unknowable counselor. Like this, we have the inability to understand this one completely that will come. So this word comes up a couple different times, and I love... I wish they would have maybe chosen a different word, but wonderful counselor is what we have. But it's that same word when he says, you can't even understand my name. So don't, don't even ask because that's the nature of who I am. I'm not completely knowable. And so then when you jump back to the New Testament in Revelation 19, you see that again coming up. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. I just love that that mysterious nature of Jesus, that all-powerful, I don't think you can understand me completely, right? So, and why do I say all this? Because we cannot just leave Jesus in the manger, right? We cannot just leave Jesus in the manger. We have to understand that the one that we worship at Christmas time is the unknowable one. Yes, he's revealed himself to us, as we're going to see here in a little bit in Revelation, but also, though, he is the creator of the universe, and that is who we serve. That's who Jesus is, right? So as, he, as John continues to go on in Revelation 19, he more Christmassy verses. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So this is absolute judgment. This is authority to, to wipe out and crush evil completely. It's Genesis 3 coming to full fruition here is what we're seeing. And then, yes, we do have his name, as he said in John 1. He is the Word of God, and we have uh, things that we know about Jesus, but it's like, there's still kind of like that, uh, you know, this back and forth. Like, man, he is all out here, but he's also very imminent. He's also very with us. There's, there's that tension with Jesus. And he keeps going. And the armies that were with heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. This is a, a picture of their purity, their holiness, those that are coming back with Jesus. And then 15, a sharp sword. So the word that was used here is ramphia. Or this is something that, um, I'll show you a picture in a second. This is coming from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. Now, this is something that would have been very familiar to his listeners at the time. Like the Romans were there. The Romans were in charge. People knew what kind of weapons the Romans were using. And so when Jesus is said here is a word picture that a sharp sword or a ramphia is coming from his mouth, this is what people would have thought of. So this is a Roman ramphia. It's a very long sword. As you can see, it's a very pretty intimidating sword. But because of its length and its sharpness at the point, it was often used for spearing. So when he says that a, a sharp sword came out of his mouth, I don't want you thinking like, Bleh! like Jesus is just like puking out some sword, right? That's not, that's not what's happening here. This is a word picture. And people at the time, historically speaking, would have been like, yeah, this is something that pierces, right? It pierces. It's dangerous because the word of God is powerful and it 
pierces, right? It has that ability to do that. And so this is the word picture that's um, being brought up for his listeners. So the Roman ronthia, you know, the, the sword is coming out of his mouth. And again, that just shows the power of the word of God. And then some more Old Testament imagery here. He's going to rule them with an iron rod. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. But this again, Genesis 3, absolute authority, absolute, like, evil is not going to win. Like, this is going to happen, and he's going to rule with an iron rod. This is, again, th there's just so many uh, words and pictures here that are being given to help us understand that this is ultimately who Jesus Christ is. And then, kind of famously, I guess, in verse 16, you can say, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings, and what? Lord of Lords. Uh, I used to always talk with, uh, so my, my mother-in-law doesn't like tattoos, and I'm like, well, it looks like Jesus has got one on his thigh. So, and she'd be like, that's not what that says. I'm like, I think it is. <laughs> but this is just, again, like this is who Jesus is. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is who we worship. And that's why Christmas is so powerful. Because yes, baby Jesus, but ultimately, what? What's the title? King of what? And what? Lord of Lords. Like, that is who we worship at Christmas time. That is why Christmas is so awesome. And doing all this, in light of what Jesus has said, he sees this story in the fullness of what God has revealed. If we do that as well, we rediscover, really, the meaning of Christmas, the joy, the power of Christmas. And we see the freedom that is offered, because if you're a king of kings and a lord of lords, you can offer anything you want with absolute authority. Amen? That's what we've got. So then the question is, though, okay, so Jesus is cool. He gets, like, a white horse and, like, cool tattoos and stuff. But what exactly, though, is going to happen because of that? How do we button all this up? How do we land this plane of this Christmas series and say, okay, so he's going to come back, but what does that mean? And Dean taught on this next section here, um, gosh, years ago, and it's about heaven. Because a lot of us, there's, there's so many misunderstandings about what's in the Bible because kind of, I guess, culturally, things have just handed down to us, and they're lame, and they're not biblical, right? Because most of us for heaven, along, for a long time, you think, oh, heaven's going to be like in the clouds, and I guess I'll get a harp. So if I'm a guy, I'm going to have to dress like a Middle Eastern person or a woman or something. Like, I remember thinking that as a kid, like, why would I wear a dress? Like, I don't want to be wearing a dress forever. And then I got to sit on a cloud and play a harp. Why, why a harp? Why do I want to play that? You know, but that's just like, that's what was given. It was in all the cartoons that I watched. It's in all like popular media. And I was like, I honestly remember thinking like, that's going to happen for an eternity. <laughs> like, that's not fun at all. That doesn't seem cool. Like God can create the universe, but I got to sit on the cloud. So this next section is a picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do. And it's the reality of what heaven is. And it has nothing to do with clouds, has nothing to do with harps, uh, none of that. Like this is not, that's not a real, realistic picture. And I remember Dean studying this several years ago and saying, you know, when he really put the fullness of God's word together and he said, wow, heaven's actually going to be pretty amazing. It turns out the one who created the universe is also going to have a pretty awesome heaven. And it's like, well, duh, but right, you know, so. Revelation 21, where is this all headed? What was baby Jesus, uh, you know, what was his mission ultimately going to be? So, then I saw, so John has a new vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And this I had to do some studying on because I, I wondered, is heaven not going to have an, an ocean? 
Like, is there, is there going to be like a drought problem in heaven or something? Like, what's going on in heaven exactly? Because, again, this is not, like, heaven is going to be a physical place. And I, it, honestly, I don't think it was until I was here where I fully realized that heaven is not going to be up in the clouds somewhere. A new heaven and a new earth, and these are both important, are going to be remade. For the first heaven, first earth, passed away, they're gone. So heaven is a physical place. So eternal heaven is a physical place. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not talking about cloud nine. He's talking about a place that he's going to prepare for us. And so the sea then, now think about this from John's perspective. And here's kind of where the, the history of knowing what's going on with John at the time. So he's on Patmos, the island of Patmos, right? And he's looking out across. He's exiled. By this time, he's probably all messed up from being tortured by the Romans. And he's looking across, perhaps even to Ephesus. Maybe he can see it out in the distance, the shoreline of where he used to live, where the people he loves are, the church that he had discipled. You know, those people are Polycarp, like all these people that he had been connected with. What was he separated from them by? A sea. So for him, sea represents separation. Right? There's, there's no more connection anymore. He's exiled by himself out on this island. And then also, sea in the Old Testament and in the ancient world really represented chaos. You know, to talk about the sea and, and use that as imagery was to talk of chaos and death and things that were scary. And so what John is saying here is not that there's a drought problem in heaven, but that there is no more separation between us. The relational uh, damage that was done because of sin is no more, right? Between people, that is going to be restored. Our relationship then with God will be finally fully restored is what John is trying to get at here. That's the reality of heaven. And then he keeps going. I also saw, again, think physical, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And of course, again, more imagery here, just the beauty of what he's seeing, the majesty of what he is seeing coming down out of heaven. This is not, uh, again, a, a, like a, a physical description. This is just him saying, oh my gosh, look at that. Like, look at this new city that's been prepared for us. Look at where we are going to end up. Just as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And John is finally getting to see it. And it's cool because John, of course, wrote that. I go to prepare a place for you. And now he's able to, in this vision, kind of see what Jesus was talking about. Heaven is a real place that Jesus himself is going to make. The very one that created the universe is also going to create heaven for us to be fully restored with him, which I just think is awesome. And then in verse 3, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling, and that dwelling there is a Greek word means tent or tabernacle, skinny. So again, you think Old Testament, right? So a big story. How does the whole story fit together? Well, God originally in the Old Testament in Genesis created an environment where he could be perfectly with people. That was original intent. I want to be in relationship with the ones that I've created. But then all of a sudden Genesis 3 happens and the relationship is broke. And then you see God saying, okay, I'm not going to give up. By the time Moses gets around, I want to tabernacle with my people. I want to be in your presence. In Leviticus, he says, I want you to have these laws so that I can walk among you and be your God. You know, Leviticus is not a very easy book sometimes to read through, but they're right there in the middle. I think it's chapter, well, I don't remember now, but he says, I want to be with you and walk among you and be your God. I want to be in relationship. 
And then it just keeps going on and on and on. All throughout the Old Testament, here's God trying to be with his people, trying to connect with the ones that he's created. And then Jesus, of course, himself is the fullness and perfection of that system because he literally is God with us. He is the Emmanuel. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Literally, God is with us. And then here's John seeing this at the end time. Look, God's dwelling, his tabernacle. Finally, it's all coming to fruition. The entire Bible, all of human history, God is restoring everything to how it should have been originally. And the Christmas story fits into that in a very important way. But it all points to these things right here. Because he is with humanity, and he will live with them as he originally intended. And he keeps going. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Again, here we go. Genesis, the early chapters. I want to be with my people. I've created them for relationship, and I want to be in relationship with them. This is God. This is where it all heads. This is where everything goes. This is why the power of the Christmas story is there right in front of us if we're able to look at the scope of the whole story. Now, this is what God was always intending. And why did Jesus come? Well, because he wanted to do this. Like, because he loves us that much. I mean, it's an incredible thing to think about, that he actually wants this, that he would go to war for us, that he would be murdered for us, the spiritual nature of everything that was going on for us and for your friends, for that coworker you can't stand, and for that relative that is going to come visit you this Christmas season that you're hoping doesn't stay too long. Or maybe you're that relative that people don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works in your family, right? So next verse. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. In verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right? This is where we get this from, about what heaven is going to be like. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Right? The bigger story of the context of what we're talking about here, because we're going all the way back to the garden. All these things were introduced in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and God says, finally, all that's done. Finally, all of that is done. Because this is the reality of the world we live in. Full of grief, full of crying, full of pain. All that stuff's done. Like, God gets, gets it. Jesus walked our shoes, right? He did this. or He walked in, uh, at least in our experience. And then in verse 5, God speaks. So God now is going to voice his own ideas here. So next. Then the one seated on the throne said, look. I am making everything new, right? The importance of seeing what heaven actually is. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. So now for the third time that's been said. So Revelation chapter 3, that said. Revelation 19, because Jesus is faithful and true. And here again now in Revelation 21, that phrase has been repeated three important times to help us understand who God is and what the nature of God is. That he is faithful and true, as are his words. Then verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And alpha, of course, first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. I am all-encompassing, right? Jesus Christ, beginning, and he is tied into all of that when we think about his story. And he said, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. So Jesus is re being repeated here from when he said this in the Gospel of John, that he is what? The fountain of life, right? He is the one that brings that life-giving water. Like, that's who Jesus is. And so, again, it doesn't seem sometimes to think of these verses in, a, in the context of Christmas. But, man, that's why Christmas is so awesome. Because this is what Jesus Christ said would ultimately be the result of him coming here. And the victory that was announced in Luke chapter 2. 
And then the last verse, verse 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So why use the word son here? What's going on with that? Are you ladies out of luck? Just going to be a bunch of dudes up in heaven? No. This is, again, this is like legal language here um, because a son was the one then that could legally inherit everything, right? There was a, there was a sense that uh, as a son, you got to get everything that the father had. And so what's being communicated here is not that it's just guys or sons or boys, but this is like legal terminology here that we get everything, that the creator of the universe is saying, you are adopted, you are mine. That, that, that's why I came, so that we could be once again in relationship and everything that's mine could be yours. It's an incredible statement. So, in closing, the Christmas story. It's a big one. It's one that really does encompass the whole Bible. From beginning to end, God was telling a story that Jesus was going to bring to fruition himself. And it was all pointing to Jesus. And, and I think even understanding this allows you, when you go back and you're reading in the Old Testament, if you're thinking about what Jesus would do and the role that he would play, like it, it does help you understand and see some of these things. It's like you've seen, uh, you know, you watch a series on Netflix and you accidentally watch one of the later seasons before you realize you, have, you should watch the whole thing. You kind of already know what's going on ahead of time, right? And it's like that's kind of what's going on when you look at the Old Testament in light of, how Jesus' story fits into that. Because that's when you realize, again, the power of the story. You realize that freedom really is offered now, and it's offered by the what? What's this? King of kings and Lord of lords. Like, that's who the freedom is offered by. And it's a guarantee that Jesus repeatedly gives us in the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament that this is what I bring you today. Right in the middle of your life and the difficulties, the grief, the pain, the tears, the death. All of that, like, I give you my freedom in the midst of that. Not that you're not going to have those things, not that you're going to have worries and things that you need to, like, do and that you're concerned with. But Jesus offers us freedom in the middle of all that stuff. And that's tricky because that's the tension where we live today. We live between the first advent and the second advent. And that's a difficult place to be in, isn't it? Because that's life. <laughs> that is life, and it comes with all kinds of difficulties. But I think, though, that it will help you rediscover Christmas when you see it in its full context. And that is the Christmas story. All of it. That's what it looks like. All right? Dean, you want to come and pray? I'm back. Can I, can I have you stand with me? Lord, thank you. That, yeah. Thank you that your plan unfolded in such a, an amazing, uh, life-changing, hope-giving way. Thank you from the beginning of time. In fact, before time began, you set into motion your plan that would unfold. And the wonder, the miracle, is that you would include us in your plan. And just hearing Kyle mention... Uh, looking into the future and behold a new heaven and a, a new earth mm -hmm. and a bride, uh, us, being included in, in, in your plan. Thank you. I pray that as we go home today and either continue to celebrate the birth of our Messiah, Savior, God, 
Jesus. And as we, some of us spend time with family and just enjoy good gifts, I pray that we will know that the God of heaven is good and gives good gifts. I pray that you will place your peace, your hope, and your purpose over your family at Quaybog. Mm -hmm. And that we will go home to be your ambassadors of, of joy and hope and peace, no matter what is going on around us. Some of us are going to spend this weekend with difficult people. Uh, help us to bring joy and hope and peace wherever we go. Yeah. And I am so grateful, Jesus, that you are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the hope of the world. Amen. That's right. Amen. Merry Christmas. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.